Hi, folks. This is Lynette, um, your co-executive director and co-host for the Unconscious Bias Project podcast. Just last week, we had the awful domestic terrorist white power event that happened in our nation's capital. And we're not here to remind you about how um, awful it was and all the ramifications, but I do want to urge you, you know, yes, we did finish voting, but now is the time to call your elected officials, whether at the local level, at the Senate level, House of Representatives, doesn't matter what position they hold. Now is the time to call them, email them, mail them almost every day as much as you can. Just take five minutes out of your day to contact them and tell them what you think and what you want them to do. Our democracy was very much in peril on January 6th. And we need to do something about it. And it is everybody's civic duty, no matter where you are, if you're in some way elected any sort of official, now is the time to tell them what you think and ask them to act on your behalf. And if they're already doing what you would like them to do, call them and tell them thank you. Tell them that they're representing you. They need to hear our voices now more than ever. So if you have the bandwidth, please call them. Thanks. Hey everyone, today we are so excited to bring you this podcast. We talked about so much as usual. We covered everything from what it means to be somebody that was formerly incarcerated, now essentially being a role model for hundreds if not thousands of people currently in the prison system to give them hope, to give them a path for the future. We talked about Fight, which is an amazing film. Uh, We'll talk more about that in a minute. We also talked about people with disabilities and the struggles that are happening right now. We also talked about where we're going moving forward with changes to the the prison system. I definitely learned several things that I did not know about incarceration and the way the prison system or the justice system works. Just so excited and prepared for listening to just a very informative and really definitely emotional episode today. Enjoy. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another Unconscious Bias Project episode. Uh, My name is Lynette Mara, she, hers pronouns. I'm the co-executive director of the Unconscious Bias Project, and I'm here with my co-host, Alexis. And so my name is Alexis. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the other co-executive director of the Unconscious Bias Project. So welcome, everybody. Um, Today, uh, we're super excited to have two guests on with us. So our first guest I'm going to introduce is Clarence Ford, pronouns he, him, who is staff at the W. Hayward Hayward Burns Institute, where he focuses on recent developments in research legislation and analyzes data to understand the impact of justice system decision making on people of color. Clarence has lived experience in the justice system and became a community activist and policy advocate to lower barriers for reintegration for formerly incarcerated people. He's led the Ban the Box initiative at UC Berkeley and was a community organizer for the Safe Return team. He received his master's of public policy from Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy in 2018, and while there was featured in the next guest's film, Skylar Economy, pronounced she, her, is co-founder of the Photogenie Films, LLC, which focuses on narrative and documentary films. She has worked with numerous award-winning filmmakers and contributed to several documentaries for Sundance, Netflix, PBS, and CNN. 
She is also producer and co-director of the film From Incarceration to Education, also known as Fight, that we'll talk about today. She received her BA in Film and Media Studies at UC Berkeley in 2016 and has founded several film and media organizations while a student there. So welcome, both of you. Hi, welcome, everyone. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. Skylar, we know each other through the Art for Social Change class that I took as part of uh, the Big Ideas program at UC Berkeley. And I'm curious, and thank you, by the way, for taking a chance on coming on the podcast. But I'm curious, can you tell our listeners, how did you and Clarence meet? Ooh, it was a while ago. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> back, I think, in 2014, 2015. I was a student at Berkeley undergrad at the time, and I had read an article on Berkeley side, which is this little uh, community newspaper. And it was about underground scholars, an organization for formerly incarcerated and system impacted students at UC Berkeley that was just forming at that time. And it had Danny Murillo and Stephen Sifra. And so I ended up reaching out to them because I was just fascinated. And I thought that it was really awesome that those who are formerly incarcerated were at UC Berkeley. And I ended up meeting Danny and Steven for like four hours one day. And I was like, what if we do some kind of film of some sort? And they're like, I don't want to be in it. So, but we have someone who would be great for it. And they gave me Clarence's contact information. And so Clarence and I met, I believe it was a a Starbucks, wasn't it, Clarence? Um, Uh, Yep, (laughs) yep. we met at a Starbucks. That's Gallup's favorite. (laughs) And we ended up just talking for, I think, also almost four hours until one of us had to, we had (laughs) another thing that we had to do that day. Um, And we didn't even finish our whole conversation. It was like just the start of it. It was just an amazing conversation. And I think that Clarence and I really, you know, connected over that four hour long coffee (laughs) talk. So that's essentially how Clarence and I met. That's awesome. I love when you meet somebody and you just have that immediate rapport and ability to just work on things together. Can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly is From Incarceration to Education? Yeah, so From Incarceration to Education is a short documentary meant for educational purposes that is meant to be screened in prisons, jails, youth detention centers, college campuses, organizations across the country. And it's meant to be screened and then partnered with a Q&A with either community organizers or uh, Clarence and the other people in the film to create this conversation about achieving higher education and going into fields that impact communities that are system impacted. So basically, we ended up starting this um, when I was a senior in college, and that was back in 2015. And so Clarence and I Initially, this was just a six-minute film that I was doing for my documentary class. And I ended up sending that into a few juvenile halls and community organizations across the country. And it ended up getting screened in a youth detention center in Santa Barbara, an organization in New York, a center in Georgia. And seeing that impact that like Clarence's story and Violetta, who was in the first six-minute film, had on the people who it was being screened to was just an amazing thing. And so essentially, Clarence and I kind of decided that we wanted to make this little six-minute film into a bigger, more impactful film. And we ended up developing this concept that was a 25-short-minute educational 
film that was meant to be screened in prisons, jails, and youth detention centers across the country. And that's what we ended up doing. And so what ended up happening is we applied to Big Ideas, which is a uh-huh. grant on campus, on UC Berkeley campus, as well as the other UC schools and other college campuses across the country. And we applied to the arts and social change category, and we were the first documentary to ever get this grant. And oh, wow. Yeah, it was a big deal. <laughs> and we also were invited to the Grand Pitch Day for, I think it was Community Impact. And mm-hmm. we ended up getting that as well, which was a great feeling. Um, also the first documentary or film in general to ever get that. So this really helped us with creating the film and we were able to go forward and just make it happen. And it premiered in uh, October 2017 and it has been screened all around the country since then. That's awesome. Is there a sense of an average age or how young the viewers are for this? I'm just curious about the extent of the impact in that way. Yeah, I think it really ranges. Uh, I mean, we've screened at youth detention programs before, and I know it's being independently screened in a few in other locations at youth detention mm-hmm. centers. So that age, you know, ranges from all youth. And then we also, you know, we'll screen at college campuses for, you know, students as well as the community. And then we'll also go to prison like San Quentin um, or CMF Vacaville. So honestly, the ages really range. We'll say like from 14 to 70. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Something like that, probably. <laughs> yeah, I just did a, a quick search and there's this title from HuffPost that said, Children as young as 12 get locked up for committing, and I don't even want to read the rest, but um, that is so, so early. Yeah. Uh, and in some jurisdictions, it's even younger than that. But and really? Got, yeah. The, uh, some states have as low as like six, but I think that that's more like that's, cha- that's changing now. So there are states that have uh, the minimum age. No, they have no minimum age of jurisdiction, meaning that any kid could be possibly prosecuted. Oh, my gosh. Right? Oh, my um, God. And then in California, we just recently passed legislation a couple of years ago, in which my organization was instrumental in called SB 1391. And what this piece of legislation did was uh, prohibit youth 14 and 15 from being charged as adults, right? They cannot be uh, charged as adults and, and put into the prison system. But like, of course, there are, you know, district attorneys, you know, gathering up to sort of challenge that, try to do away with it. Uh, but if you're 13 and under, California, like you can't be charged. So when you're talking with folks, would you say that you're, you're more providing an outline for how to do this or just trying to inspire them with examples of success? Yeah. I mean, for any documentary, the goal is to inspire someone or to educate someone. And I think for fight, that's very true. And it's really kind of the catalyst for the discussion that follows with the panels with when Clarence is on the panel or whoever else is on the panel, then there's that interaction that the audience can have with um, the panelists. And then even after the panels, they can go up to Clarence, they can go up to Shalita in the film and ask questions that might help as guidance to achieving higher education. I mean, Clarence, what do you think? I've always felt like, it as like an inspirational tool that it is a possibility. And then we talk about the how, but not so in a comprehensive way, but we have like David Malinano, who's in the documentary, who uh, is a PhD student at Berkeley and is like very like committed to helping 
uh, people who are in community college who've been formerly incarcerated, like transfer over into Berkeley or into any UC for that matter. And they sort of walk through that process um, in the documentary. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think it's more so of an inspiration tool. Right. At the Unconscious Bias Project, we do workshops. And one of the things that we do in our workshops is that we make sure that the people that are running the workshop, like the facilitators, can match in some way, like the majority of the audience, the majority of the participants, because you can leverage that in-group bias that makes people more likely to believe you. So I can really see the power of like adding the panels, adding the content. But like if you were just to like have them read a book or like just give them, okay, here's the outline of how you get, you know, to college after being released from uh, being incarcerated, then it's like, it might not like gear people to action as much, right? Like you might think that's a little out of my reach or that's for some other people that can apply themselves or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Or that's for, you know, uh, white kids that go through the, the juvenile detention system and then yeah. come out and have all these opportunities lined up for them. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I definitely uh, feel like it helps um, do away with some of the biases that people have had. It's like basically showing people who've been incarcerated or firmly convicted, like in a in a in a different light, right? Because you know, in the mm-hmm. news, like you see, like it's always kind of like uh, it's always like derogatory. It's always kind of sending, right? But they don't show like the good stuff, right? Now it's starting. To, now it's starting to happen. But like you know, it helps like sort of uh, with with people's perception that people who've been incarcerated, like you know, we can't change. We just need fucking resources and, and opportunity, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then I'll I'll highlight like a specific example. It's like when we were in the San Francisco County Jail. And speaking to the bias point, like those sort of like jail guards, right? I feel like they're so jaded and they just sort of have like this idea of people who are incarcerated, like seeing us as like animals, right? Like get out. I mean, I've been told I'm going to come back. I'm going to get out. I'm going to come back. Like I like my oh, life wasn't any, like didn't have any worth. But when they saw that film, like the guards came up to me, it was like, shit, like how the hell did you do that? Like, you know, they were like, I think that for them, it even kind of helped, like, kind of do away with some of their bias. Even them, like, they were saying, like, oh, shit, like, maybe some good can come from people who are incarcerated. Have you also had screenings for, like, like community colleges or, you know, like, high school counselors or or things like that? Like the Or, or even for, like, people that are, um, like, recruiters or, you know, in, like, businesses? Yeah. It, it, Fight has screened at community colleges a lot, I think sometimes more so than universities themselves. And also it was acquired by a court in Georgia to be screened to judges. And Mm. so it's, you know, as a film, you have like this intended audience of, you know, system impacted or formerly incarcerated, but then it's not until it's released that you realize that it really impacts a ton of other people. It's been screened there in San Diego. It's screened to a few of the police officers. We hope to really engage more audiences like that because this film really has the power to, yeah, it humanizes and it, you know, knocks down these unconscious biases that people have. Um, I think also I have a, one of my favorite stories is um, there's a student that showed up to one of our screenings at UCLA right when the film premiered. And he came up to me afterwards and he was just saying how he was recently released after 10 years and trying to attend community college, but he wasn't, it was, it's hard. And he saw the students in the film and he was like, well, I saw, I see them at UC Berkeley. So now I see myself achieving that. Fast forward one year and he brought fight to his community college and screened Mm -hmm. it to the uh, the administration to ask for 
organization on campus for a system impacted and formerly incarcerated students. So he was able to form that at his community college through the screening of fight with the administration, which is awesome. And then fast forward a few more years and he's at UC Berkeley. Wow. That's great. Clarence, what was your story? I missed that human sort of interaction when people come up to you afterwards and be like, damn, bro, like, that was dope. Like, how the hell you do that, man? Can you help me get what I get out? Like, I, I, I missed that, right? But the, <laughs> the example I had was, um, so when Christian, when they were actually filming it, right, uh, Christian, he had, um, he was um, following me to, like, you know, different events to, you know, see me speak and, and do speaking engagements, right? So we went up, so we went to Sacramento because uh, I had been invited by uh, my former uh, president of a community college I went to, which is uh, Contra Costa College. Co- mm-hmm. Sorry, Contra Costa College. And it was just a conference on, like, you know, um, sort of like the, the the state of like community college, uh, what 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 needs to happen, what can make it better, things like that, right? So the panel that I went to was um, talking about, you know, basically integrating people who are formerly incarcerated. And um, I was up, I was on a panel with a few people, right? And one of the one of the guys I was on the panel with. Uh, he was um, he was still no, he was still an activist at the time. So I don't think he had even I don't even think he was in college in community college at the time. I was talking about the underground scholars initiative, how we get people in who've been incarcerated, this that right. And he asked me, he's like, "Damn, you think I could go to Berkeley?" Uh, and I was like, "Hell yeah, you can go to Berkeley." And then <laughs> fast forward, like he went to community college. Went he 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 went to community college. He transferred to UC Berkeley. He got involved with the Underground Scholars Initiatives on, on on the Berkeley campus. And then I did another panel at Berkeley. And then he had um, came up to me after he was like, yeah, bro, I remember you told me I could do this shit, man. Like, look, I'm like, damn, like, wow. it's just, it just so cool to see that stuff come to fruition, right? Like, That's so great. Yeah. Just providing hope and because of you having those like one-on-one interactions, you know, they can see, I think that that's, that's one of the things that struck me about this particular documentary is that you were always, or as, as much as possible, pairing it with panels or pairing it with like the folks that were featured in the film coming and talking to people, you know, adding that human element, that human connection makes it really real. It sounds like folks like you, Clarence, were, were doing like the, essentially the professional networking, um, you know, in a way like mentorship and advocacy. Some folks need to to hear, right? You know, if you grow up and, you know, all you hear is, you know, you're good for nothing or whatever, or, you know, if you get, you're, you're in the prison system, you're in the system and people tell you like, you're going to be back, you're going to be back, you're going to be back. All it takes is that, you know, one person, right? Sometimes right. it just takes that one person to believe in you and to show you and you can have a huge impact. This is amazing. I am, I'm loving all these stories. I think we like oftentimes internalize like that negative commentary or you know that judgment like somebody telling you you're gonna be back like i've been told i I was told that in juvenile hall i was told that when i was 17 years old right i was told that i was gonna go to prison and um you know that's something you don't really they don't say that stuff to like a youth right because our brains are still like our brains are fully developed to Mm -hmm. like fucking 24 25 right uh so we're allowed to make mistakes right and it was like a really frivolous mistake it was just like a like I was trying to shoot a, a jump shot. Like I was trying to be like a buzzer beater, like Kobe Bryant, you know. And when I was doing that hall, right? And you know, the, the coach had blew the whistle. So when when they blew the whistle, everything's supposed to cease, right? All activity. But and, you know, I had tried to get a buzzer beater off, and then one of the counselors, like they're like they're like the version of guards, but in juvenile hall, but they're not called guards. They're called like juvenile institutional officers, right? But she was like, "That's your problem." Yo, listen, that's why you're going to go to prison, right? Wow. So I still remember that in the back of my head. I still remember that. And then when I went to prison, 
like I was like, damn, she was right. Like oh, she no. really told me that. And then like, so as a kid, like kids are very smart and they recall like practically, you know, all of the, the trauma and all the things that they've been told, right? And they internalize that. So when you do hear somebody with a positive message, like it does have a meaningful impact, even though we can't like quantitatively measure, but it, it makes the big ass fucking difference. I'm snapping fingers all over the place. When you were approached about making fight, like what made you really want to get involved? Uh, like like Skylar mentioned earlier, like that four hour conversation at fucking Starbucks, like I feel like the connection, like it was organic and it was it was real, right? Like I've, mm-hmm. we've been like people who are from incarcerated or in underground scouts at Berkeley. We get approached by all different kinds of students who are like, hey, can I research you? Can I have you on my project? Right? So it's kind of like, man, you just do it. Like, like we're, we're, we're like you just kind of like feeling like you gotta kind of get a sense of where people are. Are they just doing it to get like an A or like you know like where are they at? With mm-hmm. like, are they genuine? So like I guess the, the, the I mean for me like the, 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 that that like long ass conversation that we had. That, and it was like a vibe too, right? So I felt like that definitely helped. Um, you know, that was like a bit of the persuasion, like to make me want to do the to do the documentary, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then once we did it, like the idea of like a, a camera sort of following you around and make you feel like, and that was pretty dope, you know, like <laughs> make you feel like like an important person, right? Like, and then like I don't know, I feel like once I got the like it's therapy also in a sense, right? Like um, telling your story to you know, the world or to viewers, like just talking and opening up about stuff, right? I feel like every time I do that, there's like, you know, like some alleviation that 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 happens, right? So once I did that with um with Skylar and then Violetta, and then also like like seeing it on camera, like seeing it and then, you know, Skylar and them, they put the little music in the background and stuff. I was like, damn, like shit, like that was pretty fucking good. Like she, they did a, a good job <laughs> editing that, right? And then I would say it was also received well by like the whole cow community. Uh, once people started like you know saying like, "Oh man, that was amazing. That was powerful," right? I was like, "Well, shit, that wasn't even half. That wasn't even. That was just like a a, a bit of the story." I don't know. I just like you know we kind of went back and forth for like it did. Skylar put together like a team, um, team of folks. Yeah, like we we made it happen, and mm-hmm. then at that point, I felt like that's where I really got invested. And then I was like, "Well, how about like we, you know, shit? We 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 tell a story like from the um, people who transfer from community college." So we had Richard Rodriguez as like the the incoming transfer student. Like, tell that piece of it. What is that piece of it like as a formerly incarcerated student? And then we had Shalita, who was. Um, already uh, an undergrad, right? She was a tr- she had already transferred and was an undergrad at Berkeley. And then me, like as a master's student, right uh, at Berkeley, and then David as like the PhD student. So kind of having it in that linear fashion and like mm-hmm. telling like these different different steps because each of them are different, right? I, once I got that's how I really like got more and more invested because you know we really have we were collaborative in the process, even though you know we bump heads here and there. Like once you get people who Feeling that in a, of inclusivity, like it really makes all the difference, right? So, one thing that's that's really powerful right now, you know, we've been, I think it's nine months. I, it's all a time sink for me in this pandemic situation where we're we're stuck at home. Um, you know, like experiencing TV with other people, experiencing films with other people. 
you know, even if we're if we're not in the same space has really brought people together. Like I've, I've seen people, you know, just unite over TV shows and, you know, like entire people that might not have either made the time to be on social media to engage in discussions about like who's being cast for, you know, what role, where and, you know, really calling out uh, systemic uh, bias and racism in in the movie industry are just like popping up like left and right. I think mm-hmm. people are, are more active and more engaged. And so your screenings, you know, had this this in-person component that was really powerful. What's the status now? Like how are how are you sort of working around the pandemic? Are you still able to show in prisons and or, you know, in colleges? You know, how does that work? Yeah, it's hard. Um, I think for filmmakers in general, it's been really hard with this pandemic because of course you want your films to be screened like with an audience and on a big screen and with people because I always like again, I think of the film as a catalyst for discussion and then it the most important part comes after with the actual discussion. That's been challenging and we honestly haven't had any actual virtual screenings since COVID. Although I did just receive an email from a Southern California community college who wants to host a screening. So that's great. So this would be like the first panel that we'd have a virtual panel and then maybe do breakout rooms within Zoom because I think that's a thing that you can do so that you have that in-person, you know, intimate conversation that mimics, you know, in-person conversations. So I'm still not sure how that'll work, but of course it's not the same as an in-person screening, but at least it's something. If you're interested in trying out the virtual form of screening the fight film and having that uh, panel discussion, you you can submit a request by going to fitefilm.com. That's fightfilm, all one word, dot com. Right there at the top is the for request form. Yeah, thank you. And I just wanted to also ask Clarence, because I know Clarence received a few messages from family members or friends, right, Clarence, who have seen the film recently in prison? Oh, yeah. Um, this is like one of another like highlight. Was, <laughs> so I had, matter of fact, my cousin, he just got out. Uh, so he was in Folsom, right? Uh, he was in Folsom prison. Well, this is last year or two years. Yeah, man, time is time. Is, I don't know where we are since it's quarantine stuff. But anyway, uh, the feeling was that he texted me, right? Um, he texted me while he was inside, right? That's a whole other thing, right? But um, he texted me and said that I just saw you on TV, right? And like this coming from somebody on the inside, and it was like a family member. Like it was another sort of like feeling like, hey, like this, 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 this documentary is having uh, uh, an impact. So you just sort of like work with prisons and they just sort of, you know, they acquire like the rights to show it or. I honestly have no idea how Fight got onto the prison network. That is (laughs) something that really confuses me to this day. Um, like it's being screened across like California state prisons on the prison network. And I, yeah, I've never talked to anyone about that. So I'm not mad about it. <laughs> well, how does it work? Like say, say I submitted like a, Hey, I want, I want to do a screening, you know, what, what do I need? I mean, it all varies. Obviously with COVID, there probably won't be anything in person. So there won't be any costs for travel or anything, but ideally it's like, it would be great to be able to pay the panelists. So having a budget for that. But as of now, I think that's really the only cost because it's usually just Zoom that is, you know, providing the space. 
for the screening. We have no cost for the film itself, um, but really just having that budget for the panelists because they're taking their time to tell their story and to engage with audiences and uh, that's valuable. But in non-COVID worlds, I guess, you know, if it depends on where the location is and who you want to travel out. And so prices vary, but we accommodate depending on budgets because we understand that budgets vary. And if you're a community college, you might have less money than maybe a private institution. Yep. I'm like seriously nodding my head over here because that's the that's the same way we do with our nonprofit <laughs> yeah. sliding yep. scale and we're like, what is the potential for impact? Um yeah, so mm-hmm. that, that's mm-hmm. really great to to hear and for our listeners to know. Mm-hmm. Out of curiosity, have either of you experienced a like any discrimination, xenophobia? Um, what have you seen in worsened inequities during this pandemic? Uh, for me, I feel like it's <laughs> like I've been experiencing shit like that before the pandemic, right? Uh-huh. It's sort of like just like I feel like what the pandemic did was actually shine a light for the whole America uh-huh. on racism and things that you know we've been saying for years and people have sort of looked over. But uh, I myself, like you know, I'm I've been all right during yeah. the pandemic. Uh, just you know, a little lonely here and hear. there. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> but as far as my family. Like they're like, you know, they're experiencing like the sort of real sort of like the real impact of like, you know, not being able to go to work. Um, and then like, you know, the unemployment money sort of, uh, you know, drying up, mm-hmm. um, you know, the kids at home and not in school and having to, you know, not even know how to, you know, basically, uh, you know, uh, work a computer themselves, let alone like trying to do it for, for the kids. So mm-hmm. for the most mm-hmm. part, like I've been, I've been all right, but I've seen like how the pandemic has affected different people. Um, but I will highlight like when we were sort of uh, forced to, you know, watch that George Floyd incident. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like this has been like the sort of most massive um, sort of spark and uh, like the last, um, you know, like several decades because we were all yeah. forced to sort of sit down and watch that. Right. Uh, and that, but that's been happening. Right. But this particular right. situation was like the sort of a prime example that people needed to see. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, after that happened, I definitely felt like the tension outside, like it's been a young uh, black uh, African-American and mm-hmm. being outside and, and, and feeling the way people were seeing me and seeing the way like white people were looking at me. Like it was, like you could feel the tension in the air, right? Mm-hmm. Um, police like won't even like look at me. Like they, um, wow. It was like yeah, it was a lot just to go outside and sort of like and then the protests, all that. Like people were frustrated, but I would say like that was probably like the one of the the times where I felt like the tensions running really high. Mm-hmm. You know, we all had to see this, and like we all had to sit down and watch this, and just like. You know, like it had to be on film, right? Like these things have to be on film. They have to be, you know, super amplified on social media for large majority to take notice. And and mm-hmm. even then, you know, we have so many people that are that are denying it. I I cannot. It's absurd. Um, yeah, it's it's absurd, and I can't imagine. You know, so before you're already dealing with with people looking at you sideways or treating you differently, but now, like you know, and then it, again, it, you know, it had to blow up on social media for it to be a thing. But like Ahmad Arbery, you know, getting killed, like 
and you know the the wild black uh, hashtag picked up also, which existed before then, but like picked mm-hmm. up also. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I I still can't get over. I, yeah, I watched over and over the one in, uh, in Central Park in New York and I'm like, for real, like I cannot, but, but yeah, it's, it's even, you know, we have to, we had to watch that in order for something to give. Yeah. I feel like the the pandemic just, just exposed and and, and bolstered the, the inequities that were already in place, like with the housing crisis right? The mm-hmm. lack of healthcare, uh, lack of transportation, right? So I just feel like the, the pandemic really just kind of bolstered all that stuff that was already happening and made it more visible. How about you, Skylar? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have two different like answers to this. One is coming from my filmmaker perspective. Um, but of course, like with COVID, filmmaking jobs were completely depleted. Um, mm-hmm. And then now with production starting up again as of July, um, like shoots have been smaller and all of those production roles have mostly been taken by men. So every single Mm. shoot that I've been in, which is I've been lucky enough to be on quite a few different ones for different companies and, you know, films and such, but I've usually been the only woman and it's usually been bad previous to COVID, but there will be like a few other women on set, but this is now where I'm like the only woman on set, which I recently was in a situation where I was, like verbally sexually assaulted. So that person oh actually gosh. had to leave the set. <laughs> yeah. So in some ways, like in that perspective, it's, you know, the discrepancy in, you know, who is on set. It's just mostly men these days, specifically white men. But yeah, it's not a great situation. So in any situation that I get, I hope I try to hire as many women or, uh, you know, more diversity on set because, you know, these roles are historically always taken by white men specifically and now it seems to be reverting back to that because Mm -hmm. there are more limited roles on sets these days um and then another twofold kind of thing is that like my brother he's learned disabled and also has epilepsy and then also i have epilepsy and so for us you know this health crisis that we're in and then with healthcare and everything has been really really scary um, having to pay for health insurance while also not having work is also mm-hmm. frightening because it's like I'm paying X amount of money per month, but also maybe not making as much money that I should be to pay for that health insurance to protect myself. And then same with my brother. And it's really difficult. And I think that it's just obviously it's a huge national crisis, health care and health providing and insurance and everything. And then for my brother, who's developmentally disabled, a lot of programming is not happening right now. And it goes back to that human connection. And if you don't have that, then it can be just absolutely terrible. And so my brother is really kind of struggled because of that. He hasn't had that human connection and he doesn't know how to process what's going on in the world. And so that's led to a lot of issues with, you know, mental health issues and then, you know, physical health issues and such. So that's another side effect that's been happening during covid yeah and i think it's something that isn't talked about enough is in the whole disabled community during covid Mm -hmm. yeah so we're gonna take a brief second here to pause for some messages hey everyone this is seth i use he him pronouns and i'm one of the audio editors and volunteers here at ubp The Unconscious Bias Project brings creative, accessible, evidence-based solutions for unintentional bias to academic, technological, governmental organizations, and beyond. 
we sustain a welcoming home for inquisitive and creative minds and encourage a growth mindset, working by the model 0% guilt, 100% empowerment. Please subscribe or follow our Facebook and Instagram for the latest in events and how you can learn more and be involved. Also, take a moment and check out our guest website and learn more. Look for that information in the description section of your podcast or on our website. I remember uh, Alexis cited this one article, and I think this was way back in April, but uh, they were talking about, and I'm trying to look up the the actual numbers now. Okay, here it is. Um, an Ohio prison uh, found that more than 70% of their of people that were incarcerated there were positive for COVID-19. So it's like, I don't know that much about, about what happens in the prison system, but I've read, you know, some accounts here and there of, you know, folks not receiving adequate medical care for mm-hmm. multiple reasons, either it's bias or it's straight up cruelty, or, you know, there's also this thing in like medicine where uh, the the stereotypes of black people being strong influence how they, they perceive uh, pain. But I'm curious if, if either you, Skylar or, or Clarence know about um, how the pandemic is is currently affecting people that are currently in the in the prison system. Uh, I heard a um, reference the other day that said that the prison was like a petri dish, right? So, uh, and you know, even when I was incarcerated, like when it would come like to cold season or flu season, like it would spread like freaking wildfire, right? Just like the mm-hmm. same, it would spread at school, right? But in the prison, like you can find all day and it's not sanitary, you're not getting clean supplies on the regular. And frankly, like the fucking prisons aren't equipped or have never been equipped for like stuff like this. And they're not even equipped in general, right? To handle just the um, basic needs of people. Uh, so, and, and, and Santa Rita, they've been um, having a, you know, a change around how they have operating. Like a lot of people have gotten sick in there. Uh, San Quentin, like there's a lot of people who've been sick over there. But just imagine just having to be on lockdown 24-7. Like when did the shut-in stuff start? Like way in March? Like, damn. Yeah. Like that is, that would drive a person crazy. Like stir crazy for real. Like we're going to stir crazy being in the luxury of our own homes. But imagine being in like a, you know, a cell, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I have two relatives right now. Or I should have two relatives and a friend that are incarcerated. Uh, one is in Santa Rita. Uh, and he's saying that, you know, they've just been pretty much um, shut down um, the entire day. They were they were doing a visitation to where you could like call in. Uh, I think that they've stopped that. Uh, but that was a way for, you know, what if they can connect with people. And then like the court system. And I, I, I had a chance to attend my cousin's court hearing while this was happening. And it was just sad, like seeing, you know, like nobody we weren't even allowed to come in the courtroom. Everything had to be handled by Zoom. Right. And then wow. like you just have to you know see all the stuff unfold on there and then like he's telling me you know over the phone like yeah when he was in Santa Rita like they put him in like some dirty ass cell uh wasn't even clean he has asthma like there's like nothing like they don't like they don't really they don't care but I I feel like out out here like these jails and prisons have a little bit more like uh they have more of a connection to the outside than more rural areas so there are like activist organizations out here like Santa Rita, like somebody's trying to sue them right now. But 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 yes, yeah, it's, it's 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 terrible. 
I, I just think that they don't, they didn't want to do anything about it, but they just like sort of forced. But the other, the other thing that we're seeing, the other thing I wanted to highlight too is that like for the longest time we've been advocating that you let out people who are like low risk or don't have, are not a threat mm-hmm. or, or going in on bullshit charges. And now y'all turn around and do it because COVID happened. But we've been saying this shit for decades, right? Like, right. But y'all been saying that y'all can't do that, right? But then as soon as something like this happens, like y'all are able to kind of flip that switch and then, and then do it. But what we've been saying that all along, and it's brought down the jail population by a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that that was also something interesting. Took a pandemic to like that happen. So frustrating when you're like, really, this is this is what it took. Like, right. I'm glad that you're doing it now, but really, it shouldn't have taken this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, why are we now suddenly paying attention to prison conditions? Like, why why are we now actually thinking about, you know, what have we been doing with our elders in our community, you know, just shoving them into these, mm-hmm. into these tight spaces? That's really revealing of, uh, you know, not just the systems that we've sort of helped continue and, and reinforce, but also the culture that we have. So I, I come from Colombia and and the culture there, I mean, not to say that we don't have serious problems, um, but, but the culture there is more, um, it's definitely more community-based. It's more, you know, like there's intergenerational households, uh, things like that. And, you know, if somebody needs help, like the whole family is there, you know, like the extended family, the cousins, you don't even know their names that you saw like one cookout, like they're there. Um, and it, it makes me sort of wonder if past this pandemic, we're going to find some maybe cultural shift. I hope so, too. Yeah. It made me remember what you said, Skylar, uh, when we first talked um, about uh, people complaining about feeling that they were in prison at home. I just remember being on like Instagram or social media and people would equate being like, quote unquote, quarantined in their apartment as prison. And it was just like, are you serious? Yeah, and Ellen just did that as well, I guess. So um, I was going to say, so that kind of that kind of brings us around to another point. We are always kind of trying to help people see how they can intervene when they see behaviors that are problematic, how they can intervene in moments of bias when they see or hear something that they're like, that just isn't right. What kinds of things have either of you experienced or seen that you wish somebody had stepped in and how do you wish they had stepped in when they just see people just saying things that you're like, really? How do you wish more people would kind of intervene in those moments? If I'm around in a situation, like sometimes like I'll intervene, but I'll, I'll examine the situation first and then see like, hey, like if, if my safety is at risk or not. But I think for me, I definitely would encourage, especially like, you know, uh, white folks to like, really, um, you know, talk to their aunts and uncles who sort of have those more conservative views and try to, you know, talk to them and, and bring them up to speed and about, um, you know, all this was happening, like all the different changes and just challenging them on their views, right? Because I do that in my own family, right? It's not more so much about racism. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I feel like with Black people, like we've been indoctrinated by like, you know, white supremacy. So we always feel like, you know, the tie yourself up by a bootstrap like that was like mm-hmm. a part of the whole like national discourse like in the 80s right like if you poor yep. it's your fault 
right? So choice is really big. Like in my community, people say, oh, you shouldn't have did that. Oh, you shouldn't have been out there. You wouldn't have got arrested, right? But it's like, when we look at weed, like right now, right? Like back then it was like a felony. Like we were saying, like, you know, it's, it's their fault for selling weed. It's their fault for uh, getting in trouble for it. But now it's like, okay, now we're decriminalizing weed, right? No, that wasn't, that's not an individual choice. That was like a structural issue. Right. right. So, for, so for me, it's more so like educated, but not trying to do it in a kind of same way, but it does get mm-hmm. fucking frustrated. Like, the, like yeah. it's frustrated as hell, right? It's like, damn. But uh, it's like talking to a brick wall, but you know, you can't do yeah. stuff in one conversation. Like, patriarchy, especially like homophobia, like that, like that kind of stuff in, in, in my community, in my family, is like where it's like I have to sort of like, you know, challenge my family, just, just politically educate them, right? Um, mm-hmm. on like, you know, why it's not cool. Oh, if, you, if this was done to you, like you wouldn't like that, right? Yeah, I think it's like same answer as Clarence really like challenge people and through that educate people. Like I've always been hypersensitive to the R word, for example. And so whenever mm-hmm. I heard that, I'd always call someone out for that and explain why that wasn't cool. Um, and I, I do think I've noticed a lot more people doing that. I think with, you know, BLM and everything, people are, I think, being less quote unquote people pleasers and just being, you know, out there and being aggressive and telling people what they shouldn't be saying. Um, so I think that there's been a switch and, you know, specifically a lot of white folks, um, which I think is great. And then also another thing to add to like, for example, my story about, you know, the whole situation on the film set where I was uh, verbally sexually abused, but that was an action that the director took and he decided to lay that person off from the set. So it's like also have those actions that can be consequences for other people's actions. So I think that teaches people's uh, lessons as well. So actions also speak very, very loud. Uh, Clarence, what you were saying, you know, in families, all it takes is the head of the family to be like, hey, stop using the R word. That's not cool. We don't we don't do that in our family or you know, um, in, in the Latinx community, for example, uh, colorism is so big. It's such a, it's such a huge problem. And all it takes is, you know, one person, maybe my dad, next time we have like another, an in-person family gathering where my, my grandma is again, racist, even though she's, she's, uh, has much darker skin than I do. And, you know, she'll, she'll say something, uh, she'll say something racist. If my dad was like, you know, come on, mom, like that, that's uncalled for it. Like just that would be, can set the tone, can really change culture, can really shift things. So thank you both for providing those really great examples there. It'd be hard to talk to the elders. The response I was like, I've been here way longer. I've been here twice, three times as long as you, you can't tell me nothing. So it's like, <laughs> kind of happen to acknowledge that but like yeah but yeah you're still wrong i'm hoping I, i've had several conversations with my grandma i'm putting my grandma out there sorry mommy um but <laughs> i've had several conversations with my grandma about like marriage expectations for example and you know and it doesn't have to be like in front of everybody right like sometimes especially for our elders it's like better in a private conversation i've definitely had like talks with my mom where i'm like you know, hey, let, let's talk about this, and and she's able to open up, and but yeah, 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 definitely. Now that we're 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 trying to spend some socially distanced time with our with our extended families is a is a good opportunity, and um and for leaders to remember that they have that that follow through power is is uh 
really great. Um, what what's something that we could do we could do to to help support y'all? Yeah, I mean, I'll go first. But I mean, of course, like watch and share fight. We would love that. I think that like it's you know just as important now than ever to watch that film and you know hear Clarence's story and hear the others in the film. And if anyone wants a screening, I'm happy to help organize that. Um, Another thing from, you know, the filmmaker perspective, support, like fund and help uh, female BIPOC and disabled filmmakers. I think that's another really, really important thing that we need to pay attention to. And yeah, just ask people how they're doing. I think that's also so important. And just, you know, from the disabled community, it's like, I don't think people are asked that enough. And I think the more people who just, you know, take the time to ask, the better and happier people will be. Uh, first, I'll say, um, like, I feel like conversations are very powerful. So, you know, if you or somebody in your circle, somebody has some sort of racist, homophobia, sexist, all the isms, right? If you're hearing that, uh, have a conversation with them to sort of, you know, challenge them in a healthy way on their views, right? Don't, I would say, like, don't cancel them all the way out. Like, just, you know, just, you know, teach a person because some people just really don't know um, and have been taught for something for so long to where it's just ingrained and, you know, figure out how, how, how they can be wrong at times. Um, I have a, like, we have, like, at my job, like, we have a, a bunch of, like, curated material that we send out to, you know, people, like, how not to be racist, like, different, we have, like, different clips, different articles in which people can, you know, read to kind of understand their own biases that they hold, right, and how to sort of do away with that. Uh, so I could probably send that out sometime. And then one of the one of the podcasts, other podcasts that I um, really enjoy listening to is Ear Hustle. It's on Spotify, uh-huh. and they yeah they talk about like you know if you really want to kind of get inside of like you really want to like what it's like to hear the stories of people who are incarcerated like that that podcast they do an amazing job on like highlighting the stories of people inside people that have gotten out and sort of telling that narrative. And yeah, I would just you know um, be conscious, be aware, right? Like, don't be sitting under a fucking rock. Uh, you know, like, always <laughs> yeah. challenge yourself to learn and, and, and be curious, right? And, and don't ever get comfortable because I feel like that can cause complacency. This is a space for both of y'all to amplify anything, uh, you know, maybe thank people uh, that helped you along the way or shout outs to anybody, anyone or, or deity or, or whatever. <laughs> Clarence, you're good at shout outs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, was I was just thinking like on like the award shows and they'd be like, hey, yeah, I want to thank God first. And, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I want to give a shout out of first and foremost, my mom, family. Uh, love y'all for bringing me to this world. Give a shout out to my dad, my, my dad, Clarence, my sister, Sierra, uh, who isn't here with us. They both aren't here with us anymore. Um, and, you know, the Underground Scholars Initiative at Berkeley uh, and all the ones all over California was happening, everybody. Uh, give a shout out to my grad program, Berkeley Government School of Policy, what's, what's, what's up? And then my job, like the W. Hayward Burns Institute, man, because I feel like I've been growing a lot and learning a lot. And then it's a shout out to all my people that's, you know, locked up, incarcerated, man. Keep your head up. Uh, my brothers and sisters, um, we out here fighting for y'all. So just know that. And, um, and yeah, I'll stop right there.
Um, but yeah, I, I guess <laughs> I want to give a shout out to specifically my older brother who I know has been really struggling a lot with COVID and, you know, is furloughed and has just, you know, had a really hard time with everything. And yeah, I want to shout out to PJ and then also my parents who have been able to take care of him during this time. Um, and, you know, I'll shout out my younger brother as well, just because he's, you know, applying to college now. So that's exciting. Um, but yeah, and then shout out to Clarence for being amazing and shout out to all of you for having this podcast. I think it's just an amazing thing and an amazing time to be able to do this. So um, thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you again so much, both of you, for being here. Yeah, um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, both of you, so much. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. Uh, yeah, thank you for having us. So today, uh, we had the absolute pleasure to talk to Clarence Ford and Skylar Economy, both um, ideators and amazing uh, folks that gave uh, light to this amazing film uh, from incarceration to education. Uh, we talked about everything from, uh, you know, being told over and over again that uh, you can't do it and getting beat down to how powerful it is to have just one person believe in you. Uh, we also talked about the criminal justice system in California and some reforms that have been made. We even talked about how you can intervene, uh, what you can say. Um, so some tips there on how to talk to your family. And uh, we even got uh, some amazing, uh, very honest, open uh, ideas for for leaders and what you can do. Um, everyone, uh, please, uh, if you're not, if you're, if you have any sort of time, uh, go check out uh, Fight Film at fitefilm.com. It's going to be really exciting, and yeah, you're in for a treat. Thanks for listening. You can find more information and donate at unconsciousbiasproject.org. Dr. Lynette Mara, she, her, and Alexis Crone, she, her, are your hosts. Seth Beckman, he, him, and Alexis Crone are your editing team. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to this podcast and follow us. We can be found on Facebook at Unconscious Bias Project, Twitter at UBP underscore STEM, LinkedIn, Instagram, or join our mailing list. UBP is a physically sponsored project of Social Good Fund, a tax-deductible 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you wish to sponsor us, please contact us in the Contact Us tab at unconsciousbiasproject.org.